Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. couple of introductory remarks. So it's not about women, but in general, what I'd like to do uh, when teaching Talmud in uh, public uh, venues of this sort is to at least have a woman appear somewhere in the text. So you will see that although she's certainly not the main character, there is a woman who's going to show up here and um, I will therefore uh, have, I will be Yotze. I will have discharged my obligation, so to speak, to be the feminist uh, Talmudist. So the, um, this um, Talmudic sugya, okay, but what I like to do, I could have Xeroxed it from either the Vilna Shas, which is the standard publication of the Talmud, edition of the Talmud, or I could have um, Xeroxed it from the Steinsalz edition, where it's punctuated and vocalized, but I prefer to do it my way. Um, I don't think there's anything holy about seeing it in the more traditional presentation, because this way I can separate it out according to thought units. And what I learned to do recently was to number the lines. So you are invited at the moment to either follow me as I read the Hebrew and comment in English, or you can follow in English, or you can do neither and just listen. Um, it's up to you. So a little bit of background. This um, unit, this sugya, is taken from a Babylonian Talmud tractate, Shabbat, and the nearby Mishnah makes the following statement. It's not on here. There is a Mishnah that's on here, a piece of it. But let me just say that the topic that's being discussed in the Mishnah, the context in which this appears, is what you may... Okay, chapter 6 in Mishnah Shabbat talks about what a person may, man or woman, may or may not wear out into the public domain on the Sabbath, because one of the rules of the Sabbath is that we don't transfer items from private domain to public domain, from public to private, and so on. It's a little bit hard to understand why that's considered a forbidden Sabbath labor. Maybe it had to do with commercial transactions. I don't know. But that's the general idea, and chap that's chapter 6. Chapter 5, and what we're going to look at here is the last mission in chapter 5. Chapter 5 talks about your animals what you may or may not allow your animal, let's say a saddle, uh, a ribbon, uh, what your animal may or may not go out with to the public domain on the Sabbath. We're not going to be talking about that here today. It just seems to me that it's only fair for me to locate this discussion uh, in the larger context. So at this point, I will begin. It's number five. I actually didn't know how to begin the line numberings down there, so one, two, three, four are just the titles. It says here, Mishnah. The, the Mishnah begins with some particular Sabbath laws of the kind I mentioned, and then we're going to go off onto something else, the Gemara, the Talmud, will go off onto a different topic altogether, which relates to the type, title of my presentation. 
So Mishnah, En chamor yotze b'mirda'at, line five, b'zman she'enak shuralo. So this Mishnah says that a donkey may not go out on the Sabbath with the saddle on its back if the saddle is not tied onto it. Because it seems, okay, I'm not an expert on uh, livestock, but it seems that having a saddle on the back of an animal provides it some warmth. So if it's tied on, then it's like you know going out with your coat into the street on Shabbat, which is perfectly fine. Garments are not considered being carried by you, being transferred by you uh, from domain to domain. But if the saddle is not affixed or not tied on to the animal, then it will be um, a violation of the Sabbath rules. And you are responsible for your animals. That point is going to come up in just a moment as well. So that was no number five. I left out a few things. And number six, Neither may you let your cow go out to the public domain on the Sabbath with a band between its horns. Now, I did not even know that cows had horns. I thought only bulls had horns. But if you look at, I think it's Clarabelle and the various milk cartons, you notice that cows do have stubs. So it seems, and we're going to find out about one rabbi in a moment, it seems that people could tie a band between a cow's horns. And if you say, why would anybody do that? I don't think it's like putting a band on your cat or your dog for decoration, ornamentation. But I'm assuming you could put a bell on the band. And that way, you could track your animal. Again, I don't 100% know why you might do this. But the Mishnah states clearly, a cow, you must not let your cow go out on the Sabbath with a band between its horns. And then we get. This is number seven, line number seven, is the last line of Mishnah chapter five, Mishnah Shabbat chapter five. It's an anecdote, different from the kind we discussed last night. Parato shel Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah haital yotzah birutzuasha ben karnea shelo birutzon chachamim. This is kind of remarkable. It says that the cow of, the cow belonging to Rabbi Elazar ben Azar, you may know him from the Haggadah, Okay, um, they were sitting around and so on, the five sages. He's also famous for the, um, there's a story in the Talmud that when Rabban Gamliel became um, uh, obnoxious or uh, too aggressive in his position as the head of the Beit Din, he was deposed and the person who took his place was Rabbi Lezab ben Rosario. And the one other thing I can tell you about him right now, because it's coming up in the Gemara, is that it said that he was very wealthy. So it says here that Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah let his cow, his cow would go out, meaning not just one Sabbath, but week after week, he let his cow go out on the Sabbath with a band between its horns. And then the final words are, not according to will the rabbis, meaning his colleagues opposed what he was doing, and he did it anyway. Now, there are a couple of questions you might ask to which I don't think I'm going to have answers. Why is this in the Mishnah? All right. Why is this anecdote in which we have a rule that states cows may not go out, your cow may not go out on the Sabbath with a band between its horns? I understand that. Fine. I get it. Then we have to have an anecdote telling me that a rabbi misbehaved, went against the decision, the halachic decision of his colleagues. And I think, since it's not 100% clear why this anecdote is here, that's probably why the Gemara is going to ask, in its own way, what are we learning from this anecdote? Um, at, the, at this moment in time, what can I tell you um, that I can learn from this anecdote? Um, 
my answer would be that um, debate is alive and well. Um, that just because, this is difficult for me to say, being a rabbi myself, but just because a majority vote is taken that this is not allowed, if you believe the majority voted wrong, that it should be allowed for a cow to go out on the Sabbath, then you let your cow go out on the Sabbath. I say there are rabbis around this table who will not like the idea that a congregant or a colleague who disagree with, disagrees with you can just go out and do as they please. But that is what it says here. There are other places in the mission that so happens. If you go to the Barilan database and you type in the words Shalom Bertzon Chachamim, you'll find six or seven other places in the entire corpus of the Mishnah where somebody did something against the will of the sages. So he's protesting, and I'm using that word very advisedly because I know what's coming up. And the last thing I can offer you is this. Sometimes at the end of a chapter of Mishnah, not always, but sometimes, the very end of a chapter of Mishnah, which line seven is, the Mishnah will give, so to speak, a story rather than a law. That doesn't really help uh, answer the question, why are they bothering to put in the fact that he um, you know, opposed his colleagues in this way? Not just around a table did he oppose them, but in action he opposed them. Um, I don't have any more to offer you any other explanations than that, but you may feel differently about all of this once we see what the Gemara does with that last line of the Mishnah. And what I need to say right now, which I didn't say before, is I'm very happy if there's any points of clarification to stop me, um, but if you want to like discuss and express your opinion, we have 20 minutes at the end for Q&A for those kinds of statements, but questions of this is not clear to me, uh, please explain, just tell me when. So there we have a Mishnah which seems to have no connection whatsoever well, living in Arizona, I don't believe you have livestock living around here, although in the rest of Arizona, you probably have large ranches. But this Mishnah seems to have zero connection to our lives today. I say that because now the Gemara is going to show you that it's highly, highly relevant to what we think about today. And now what I remember is I had written down an introduction. So let me now give you the introduction I might have given you even before we looked at the first Mishnah. So it's very brief, it goes like this. Yes, we are living in difficult times. Each of us can understand difficult times in his or her own way. But sometimes, and I ask myself this question frequently, is it enough for each person to say to himself, herself, I'm a good person. I, I treat people ethically. I don't cheat, I don't rob, I'm nice to people. And I'm a good Jew, you could say to yourself. I'm a good Jew in many different ways, in my observance, in my philanthropy, and so on. But you might say to yourself, but I don't go out uh, on Sunday afternoon, let's say in New York City, down to Union Square, and protest whatever they're protesting. Or when there's a women's march, okay, in the women's march, um, a couple of years ago and this past January in New York City, I don't know about the rest of the country, happened on a Saturday afternoon, too far for me to walk to. So I didn't even have to ask myself, given all the controversy about the Women's March this year, I didn't even have to ask myself, should I be going to that Women's March or should I stay home? Well, it was easy. It's Sabbath. I can't walk that far. I stayed home. Climate change. Should we go out to the streets with who's ever organizing a protest? Uh, again, depending on what you feel about climate change, but it doesn't matter this way or that way. Um, 
Is it enough just to say, yes, I'm concerned, or I'm going to um, use less, fewer plastic bags? That's what we're thinking about doing in New York these days. And in California, you have to pay extra if you want a plastic bag. But those are laws. Should I be going out to the streets and influencing? Should I be writing letters to my senator? Should I be calling? Okay, those would all be uh, actions that you could take in order to um, concern yourself with larger issues that confront um, us living in this world, in this country, and in the world. The, that's the, those are the kinds of questions you might be asking yourself. And I believe that this wonderful um, unit in the Gemara is going to address those concerns. So that's how I wanted to contextualize it as well. Now we go to the Gemara, line eight. Parato shel Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. So when the Gemara begins, it just quotes the piece of mission that it's going to comment on. So it's going to comment on the cow of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. And now it's going to ask a question that you did not anticipate. V'chara para havile? Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah owned only one cow? V'ha marav, amrela marav, avudah marav, line nine, tresa alfe egle haba maser Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah me'edre koshata v'shata. He was a wealthy man, and when he gave, when he tithed his livestock every year, he gave 13,000 calves to the Levites, to whomever you're supposed to give your tithe. So if a man, and that's only, 13,000 is only 10% of what he owned. It's the number, it's one-tenth of the calves that were born in his herd that year. You know, are these numbers exaggerated? Of course they're exaggerated. But they're saying, how could the Mishnah talk about his cow when this man owned thousands, thousands of livestock. So, you know, that mission doesn't make sense. That's not the question I would ask, but you'll see it's going to get them where they want to go. And line 10, Tana, lo shelo haita, elo shel shchento haita, umitoch shelo michaba nikret ashmo. Now, this is quite amazing. The word Tana at the beginning of line 10 means it's a Tanaitic teaching. There are two strands to the Talmud. There's the earlier strand, including the Mishnah and other teachings called the Tanaitic strand, like the word Tana, and then there's the Gemara or the Amoraim, the later rabbis explain Tanaitic teachings. So this is an earlier teaching which says it wasn't his cow that went out on regularly on the Sabbath with a band between its horns. It was his neighbor's cow. And I do need to point out to you, Shchento is a female neighbor. It's Shchena Shalom. Um, Shcheno would be male, but this is Shrento. It was his female neighbor's cow that would go out, that used to go out on the Sabbath with a band between its horns. And since, since he did not protest what he saw happening on the Sabbath, namely, he didn't go over to her, knock on her door and say, I'm Rabbi Lezabenazar, I need to inform you that we rabbis have decided that a cow may not go out on the Shabbat with a band between its horns. Since he did not do that, Nikret al Shmo, this cow in the Mishnah is, the cow in the Mishnah is referred to as his cow. Let me just make sure that all of this is 100% clear. There's a very big principle starting to emerge here, namely that um, it's not just your cow that you have an obligation to make sure does not go out on the Sabbath with a band between its horns, according to the majority of rabbis. That's, that's not your only obligation. 
if you see a Jew violating the Sabbath, when I say violating the Sabbath, according to the, the rules set out in this Mishnah, if you see a Jew violating the Sabbath, it is your responsibility, at least if that Jew is your neighbor, it is your responsibility to point out to that Jew, you're doing something wrong, all right? Now, you may say to yourself, this is crazy. I will tell you that I used to, uh, when I was traveling to JTS by subway every day and walking up from 116th to 122nd, I passed a guy um, who used to work in the grocery store at 121st. He'd go out and take a break for a smoke. He'd be smoking a cigarette on the sidewalk. And I was friendly with him because I used to buy there. So frequently I would say to him, you know, you shouldn't be smoking. Smoking is dangerous. It didn't stop him, all right? So eventually I gave up. But at least at that point, I felt I was doing the correct thing, that watching somebody harm himself, which we know smoking does, um, I shouldn't just walk by him and act as if uh, it means nothing to me. No, he wasn't a stranger, so we're not talking about maybe a little risky going over to stranger. It was somebody I knew, you know, like in the category of her neighbor, his neighbor. So what, what being said here is, you're, you're in charge of your own cows, and you're in charge, or you're morally responsible to inform your neighbor of violations of the Sabbath that she is committing by allowing her cow to go out like that. So this, this is quite a leap. You are not just responsible for yourself. You, you have to kind of go over and wag your finger at other people when you see something they're doing wrong. Now, right now, I want to distinguish between religious transgressions and ethical transgressions, all right? This Mishnah, for sure, is talking about a religious transgression, uh, violating the Sabbath according to the rules of this Mishnah. But what I, and, and what I was talking about is uh, smoking is hurting your health, or if we don't change the way we're using energy in this country, everybody may uh, ultimately uh, suffer and so on. Um, th those are not religious sins. I don't know exactly what to call them. Um, it's like they're behaving immorally if um, we allow all our icebergs to melt and so on. So I'm making a distinction today between uh, would I tell somebody um, who's violating the Sabbath, would I go over to anybody I know who, I don't know, let's say smoking on the Sabbath, would I go over to a Jewish person who I saw smoking on the Sabbath and say, you know you're violating the Sabbath and I have a moral responsibility to point that out to you? No, I don't think I would do that. But what I want to say is that in the ancient world, they didn't draw a distinction. They did not draw a clear distinction between um, violation of the Sabbath and ethical violations, you know, stealing from somebody or whatever. So in case you're wondering, like, how crazy can this be? No, no, it's not, it's not crazy at all. It's saying, oh, yeah, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am my brother's keeper. And what it means to be my brother's keeper is to worry about his behavior from um, my perspective, be it religious, social, ethical, and so on. All right, I am continuing because they're going to make the point even sharper. So now I'm at line 11. Rav, Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Yochanan, Rav Chaviva Matnu. Now, before I say anything, I just read the names of four rabbis. And then the verb at the end says, they taught. It is extremely rare in the Talmud to get four rabbis agreeing on anything, all right? But, and you, so that's a way of alerting you in advance to the importance of the principle that's about to come up. And I will also tell you that 
Uh, Rav is a Babylonian Amora. Rab, uh, early first generation Rabbi Hanina is a uh, Jerusalem Amora. You know, appears in the Jerusalem Talmud. Rabbi Yochan is Jerusalem Amora, and Rav Chaviva is a Babylonian Amora. So we've got four early rabbis spanning geographical areas, uh, land of Israel and uh, Babylonia. They're, they all teach the following statement. Line 12 is a note, which I'm skipping because it doesn't add to us what we're doing here. And here comes the principle. And the other thing before I read it, I want to point out, those of you who know Talmud uh, will appreciate this, that when the Babylonian Talmud or even the Jerusalem Talmud wants to tell you something important for posterity, for you to pay attention to, it's almost always in Hebrew. You know, people say, oh yeah, Talmud is written Aramaic, and I don't know Aramaic, I can't study Talmud. Not true. <laughs> If, if you don't know a word of Aramaic, and by the way, we all know Aramaic. If you know Hebrew, you know Aramaic. Because, like, the word, what's the word for book in Hebrew? Sefer. And what's the word for book in Aramaic? Sifra. You just add an aleph to the end of the Hebrew word, and you get the Aramaic uh, equivalent. All right? So um, if you know Hebrew, you know Aramaic. If you know neither, you know neither. But, um, Yes, yeah, so the important statements are made in the Talmud in Hebrew, and you can actually get by studying Talmud even if you don't know Aramaic. But here it is. Uh, it's lines 13, 14, and 15. Kol mi she'efshar limachot. Some people would read it as limchot, but it's actually in the peel, if you know Hebrew grammar, that's the more intensive conjugation. I don't have to say more than that. Kol mi she'efshar limachot l'anshe beito v'lo micha. I'll read all three lines and then I'll translate. This is an amazing statement. Anybody who is able, who has the wherewithal, who can, if, for, if it's possible for someone to protest the people of his household, meaning they're doing something, and again, it can be religious, it can be immoral, it's all wrapped up into one here. If you have the ability, if it's possible for you to protest the wrongdoing, that's why I use the word wrongdoing because it's a very encompassing word. If you can protest the wrongdoing of the people of your house, members of your household, and you don't, and you remain silent, you don't remind them, you don't point out to them the error of their ways, nitpas, you will be, okay, literally nitpas means to be caught, but in this context it means to be punished, which is very close to being caught, you will be punished for the um, transgressions of the uh, members of your household. Meaning, this, this is what we saw in the Mishnah, but here they're making it much more um, abstract. If you see somebody in your own home doing something wrong and you fail to reprimand them, you fail to protest their behavior, you fail to tell them, point out to them what they are doing wrong, not only will they be punished, well, that's not spoken of here. But not only will they be punished for what they are doing wrong, you become responsible. You will be punished for it becomes your sin. Sin is a religious word, but I'm going to use it now because it, it works. Okay? If they sin and you were able to stop them from sinning, but you didn't, or at least point out to them that they shouldn't be doing what they did, and you remain silent, you are just as guilty and you will be punished in whatever way they are going to be punished. This is a, a remarkable statement. Then it goes on. We're talking about people of your household, meaning if you have a teenager, do you just open the closed door and find them doing whatever it is that they shouldn't be doing and yell at them? 
I'm not sure it's, it's saying exactly that, but it's saying if you see people in your own home behaving in ways that are unacceptable, it is your responsibility to point it out to them, and if not, you're punished. And then it goes on, line 14. If the people of the city, and then it doesn't have to repeat all the words, but I'm filling them in. If, you, if it's possible for you to protest the um, wrongdoings of the people of your city and you remain silent, I should really say town, town, city, doesn't matter, population, then you will be punished for the um, misdeeds of the people of your town. And then finally, 15 says, if it's possible for you to protest what's going on wrong out there in the world, meaning to protest anti-Semitism, to protest um, gun uh, issues, to protest uh, climate issues, and so on, if you see things that are going on out there in the entire world, that things are wrong in the entire world, you'll be punished for um, remaining silent out there to the entire world. This is a heavy, heavy demand that the rabbis are placing on all of us. Now, they're going to go on and uh, explain more. It, it's, it's, uh, say This is not the end of it. But this is the core principle that we find here. It's, it's not going to change. It's going to, be, it's going to be illustrated. It's going to be explained. There's going to be some little anecdotes told here. But, but this is it. In other words, to be um, a good Jew, that's what we're talking about here. To be a good Jew, according to the Babylonian Talmud, it's not enough to go to shul, to you know, support kosher restaurants, show up at learning sessions. It's not enough to do those kinds of things, which are wonderful. And of course, you're expected to keep doing them. But in addition to all of that, if you want to claim I'm a good Jew, you have to protest wrongdoing where you see it, uh, in concentric circles, in your own home if you see it. Uh, in your city, your town, if you see it, and in the rest of the world, if you see it. All right, now what does, let's, let's come down to breast tax. Let's see what this is really all about. Line 16 is a line that's hard to understand. I will do my best. Amar Rav Papa. Rav Papa lives later, much later than the rabbis who espoused the principle of 13, 14, and 15. And Rav Papa says, he lives in Babylonia, I'm translating that. Hane means those of, the people of, the home of the exilarch. The exilarch is like the governor. I heard before, governor of Arizona, mayor of New York City, governor of New York State. Okay, We're talking about political, this is Jewish. Okay? This is the highest Jewish functionary. The head of the Jewish community in Babylonia is called Reish Galuta, the head of the diaspora. So Rav Papa is saying, and these, these people of the uh, circles of the uh, exilarch, they will be punished for the entire world. Now, there are two possible explanations here. Maybe there are more. Either he, Rav Papa is saying that they, meaning they represent the Jewish community to the world outside, and they are not protesting behaviors among Jews or among non-Jews that are unacceptable, because of their silence, they will be punished for the sins of the entire world that they failed to point out. Or, that's one possibility, which would be in keeping with 13, 14, and 15. Or, Rav Papa is saying, they themselves are reprehensible. The exlock, in other words, who doesn't complain about the government? Who doesn't vote in some um, 
politician into an office, be it at the state or city or national level, and since when do we not criticize our politicians? So the people who are holding high office. So maybe Rav Papa is criticizing the people who are holding high office for their own immoral actions, their own reprehensible actions. I can't say, I don't know exactly what line 16 means, so I leave that a little bit vague. And now we get to some uh, applications. All right, I'm continuing line 17. Kihad ya like that which was taught by or stated by Rabbi Chanina. Rabbi Chanina happens to be one of the rabbis of line 11 who um, explained, you know, came out with the, that statement of uh, moral responsibility to speak out in the face of wrongdoing. And he learns it, he derives this principle from a verse. My dichtiv in Nishayahu, what's written in Isaiah chapter 3, Verse 14, if you're interested, it says there, uh, So this is, there are many, many verses in Isaiah that sound alike. This one says, God will come in judgment. God will come in judgment. Who is he going to judge? The elders of his people. And Sarav. Sarav are the high officials of his people. When I read this verse, I have no problem. It, uh, Isaiah is saying there are those highly placed individuals who are misbehaving, and God is going to come and judge them and punish them. I got it. But line 18, this is Rabbi Chanina, quotes the, verb, the verse. And in line 18, he says, Im sarim chatu zikenim machatu. Which means, okay, Sarim, I deliberately translated 17, knowing what 18 was going to say. Going back to 17, there were two groups of people that Isaiah claims God is going to judge, the elders and the high officials. The high officials are assumed to be higher than the elders. So in other words, if you imagine Moses and Aaron, maybe they are the Sarim, they are the highest, or Moses is the highest of all. But you know, many times in the Bible, it says uh, Moses spoke to the elders of the people, saying, and so on. So you've got your highest leaders, then you've got this whole level. Okay, if you want the American analogy, you've got the president, and then you've got Congress, you know, the legislature. If you want to bring in the executive branch, maybe you could do that too. But I want to keep it simple. So the point here is, in 18, if the imsarim chat'u, if the highest government officials sinned or behaved inappropriately and behaved in ways that they shouldn't have been behaving, God will punish them. Zikainim machatu. So the level, the elders of the people who answer to, who are, I don't know, below, I shouldn't say answer to, we have the top officials and they give orders and then the zikainim have to follow the orders. The elders have to follow the orders that they're getting from the top leadership so Rabbi Hanina is saying, why is God coming to punish both the elders who were lower and also the sarim who were the highest officials? If the highest officials sinned, then punish them. Let God punish them. But what's this with the, with the elders? It, like it's not their fault. You know, don't bring up the Nuremberg trials because that, uh, that's going to get complicated. We'll leave that out for the moment. But... Um, he, he's going to make a point. So in line 19, he says, 
אלא אימה רדר סי, אז כנים שלא מיכו בשרים. Meaning, why is God coming and punishing במשפט יבוא? God is going to come and sit in judgment on the elders and on the high officials. The high officials gave the orders. Why are you holding the elders responsible for the orders that they had to follow? And the answer in line 19 is because the elders did not protest the orders that they were given or the instructions that they were given or the platforms or the policies that the highest officials told them to follow. So this is um, a rabbi in the land of Israel picking up on or expanding upon what we saw in lines 13, 14, and 15. And he's saying, I'm not just telling it to you in lines 13, 14, and 15 that you should be um, rebuking the members of your own household if you see them doing something wrong and of your town and of the entire world. I'm not just telling it to you as a principle that we rabbis made up. Rabbi Hanina is saying in lines 17, 18, and 19, there's a verse. And if you read the verse carefully, you're going to find a difficulty in that verse. And you're going to say to yourself, why does God have it in for the elders? I know why God has it in for the sarim, the high officials. Why does God have it in for the elders? They were just doing what they were told to do. And the answer is, they should have spoken up. Again, it's um, this morning, right before um, AJ picked me up from um, uh, staying to bring me here, the Cohen uh, was playing. And, you know, this is so relevant. I'm not, I'm not taking a stand one way or the other, but um, this is so relevant to what's going on uh, in our country right now. All right, so that's one unit. And here we have, we just saw there was a principle, and then we have Rabbi Hanina deriving the principle from a verse. And by the way, if you are a rabbi and you want to issue a rule to your synagogue, Okay, I know we have rabbis sitting around this table, and I'm not a pulpit rabbi. But if you can say to your congregation, it's not just I, Rabbi Bisman, let's say, am instructing you to behave in the following ways. But if you can say, I, Rabbi Bisman, found it written in the Talmud, in the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, in the Bible, in the Torah, that this is how you should behave, your congregants, in theory, are going to take it a lot more seriously. Of course they should say, if Rabbi Bisman said so, then, then that's what we're going to do. But it never hurts. And in fact, it would help if, as a rabbi, you say there's even a higher authority. You know that famous ad uh, with the kosher rye or something? Uh, or was it not the rye? It was the meat. Yeah, Hebrew National. Hebrew, we answered the higher authority. OK, so, so that's, what, that's what this Rabbi Hanina is doing. He is one of the four rabbis who issued or Uh, agreed to this principle, and now he's saying, I derive it from a verse. All right, now we get to an anecdote. I continue on line 20. Rav Yehuda Haviyativ Kameh Deshmoel. All right, we're now in Babylonia. Rabbi Hanina was in the land of Israel doing what he did with his verse. Here is an anecdote. Rav Yehuda is sitting before Shmuel. Shmuel is a first generation Babylonian Amora. He's not one of the four people that we saw in line 11. And um, his student is Rav Yehuda. He's a second generation Babylonian Amora. If you want me to give you a timeline, maybe 325 common era, something along those lines. So the student, or it's not exactly a student. He's a junior scholar or a younger scholar. He's sitting before his mentor, his senior scholar, Shmuel. And what happens? Atai ha'hi itata ka tzavcha kameh. 
Okay, the word itata happens to be an interesting word. Um, Aleph, Yud, Tuf, Tuf, Aleph. The letter Tuf in Aramaic is often interchangeable with the letter Shin in Hebrew. So itata is actually Ish, Sha. In other words, Aleph, Shin, He in Hebrew. There's a dot in the Dagesh, in the Shin in Hebrew because um, it comes, originally it was a double Shin. Those of you who appreciate language, the rest will appreciate that, and the rest doesn't matter. Itata is simply a woman. Atai, the verb comes before the uh, predicate is before the subject. That's the way it works. Came that woman. Katsavcha kame. That woman came, and she, tsavcha, is she screamed out. What is, what is the English here? Does she cry out? What is she doing? She cried out. Okay. Tsavcha, it's, it's modern Hebrew as well. The tzvoach is to raise your voice, not to calmly uh, issue whatever it is you have to say, but to raise your voice. And she cries out before him, meaning Shmuel. So we have uh, Shmuel is both a judge and uh, you know, a Jewish, Jewish court of law. Uh, he's sitting there. Sitting with him is his younger colleague, Rav Yehuda. And a woman shows up, so to speak, in this courtroom, but doesn't have to be as formal as a courtroom. She shows up before Shmuel, and she's screaming. She's screaming about some injustice that was perpetrated uh, on her. And we don't know. There are no details, but it doesn't matter. A woman is there crying out, crying out for justice to this rabbi, to Shmuel. Now, if you know the word mashkiach, which is a supervisor, this is Aramaic, but it's also Hebrew. He did not pay her any attention. Mashkiach is to pay attention to. He paid her no attention. So this is a, oh, they, I said there's a woman in today's material. This is the woman I'm talking about. Um, oh, there's going to be something feminine a little later on, too. But here we have a woman. So this is an awful beginning to the story. She comes before two rabbis, one more senior, one more junior. Something happens that she's very upset about. She doesn't just speak calmly. She kind of shouts out, I, I need justice. And he pays her no attention. So that's not the end of it, all right? This is just setting the scene. Line 21, Amarle, now the thing about the Talmud is all over the place in the Talmud it'll say Amarle. Now you know Hebrew would be Amarlo. He said to him, who said to whom? You have to figure it out from context. Now it doesn't mean that you will be able to figure it out from the preceding line. Sometimes you have to read further in the story to figure out who said to whom. But I'm not going to ask you to do that. I will inform you right now that this is the junior scholar Rav Yehuda saying something to Shmuel. So Amarle Rav Yehuda said to Shmuel, I'm going to read the line: Lo savarle mar otem asno mizakat dal anet. All right. So first of all, if you are going to criticize your senior, you are not to simply say to your senior, you should be listening to her. She's crying out for justice. You're a rabbinical judge, and you're not paying her any attention. What's wrong with you? That's not the way to do it, OK? What you do if you are junior and you have something critical to say to your senior colleague, you cite a verse, all right? We talked about using a verse a moment ago. In this kind of situation, you also have to cite a verse. That's etiquette. I'm not saying you can't just um, say to somebody, what's, you know, how can you not listen to her? She's screaming in our ears. Something's wrong. Let's find out. No, um, you could do that, but this is the more proper way of doing it. So he quotes a verse from Mishle. Mishle in English is a Ecclesi not Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. 
um, Proverbs 21, it happened to be verse 13. Otemos know if you close your ears or stuff, stuff up your ears from the zakatal, from the poverty-stricken people who cry out, crying out from the suffering um, that they are in, uh, experiencing because they're poverty-stricken, you know, they're hungry, they don't have shelter or whatever. Um, if you don't listen to the cries of the poor people, you will someday call out, you know, fortunes change or things happen to you too, you will someday call out, velo ye ane, and you will not be answered. This is the passive. It's not ye ane, it's ye ane. All right? So Rav Yehuda is saying to Shmuel, um, you should be paying attention to that woman because the verse says that if you ignore the cries of the poor, meaning the poor who are suffering and looking for help, if you ignore them, you're going to be poor someday, and you're going to cry out, and nobody's going to answer you. Okay, you could say, why is that any better? I don't know. Why is that any better than simply saying to his um, senior colleague, you should be listening to her? But it is. It's saying there's a verse which says you've got to listen to her. All right? Now, he has to answer. All right, Shmuel has to answer. Line 22 is Amar Leh. But if line 21, Amarle was Rav Judah to Shmuel, line 22 is Shmuel's answer back to Rav Judah. So this is what he says. This is also a hard line. Shinana, reshach bekarire, reshad reshech bechamime, hayativ marukva av beitin. All right, and I'm going to offer um, issue with disclaimer at the outset. I don't like this answer, but it's... It's not my, it is my obligation to explain it to you whether I like it or not, but just you should know my opinion at the outset. So Shmuel says to his junior colleague, first of all, he calls him Shinana. Now, in many different places in the Babylonian Talmud, when I say many, maybe 10, not more than that, um, Rav Yudah is called by one of his teachers, Shinana, and nobody knows whether shinana means from the word tooth, shin, you long-toothed one, which is kind of an insult about his looks, or even if it's independent of his looks, it's kind of a nasty thing to say to him. Either, either shinana is related to that, meaning it's putting it a put-down, or, which here I happen to prefer the following, shinana is like the word Hebrew word shanun, Shanun means sharp, mentally sharp. So it seems to me that when Shmuel responds to the criticism that he just got from Rav Yehuda, he a little bit ironically says to him, you're so smart, meaning yes, you are very smart. How come you didn't know the following? I didn't read it yet, I didn't explain it yet. So I can't, I can't tell you whether Shinana is meant to be nasty and a put down about looks or not about looks, or it's meant to be, I don't know if you call it a backhanded compliment. Yeah, yeah, you, you are really, really smart, but in this particular instance, you're way off base. It's one or the other, or possibly a third. All right, moving on. Let me just translate the words. Reshach means your head. Bikarire, karire is cold, and the reference is to cold water. Your head is in cold water. The head of your head, resha de reshach, bechamime, is in hot water. I have to explain all that, but let me just do the translation. Ha, behold, yativ is yoshev, or yashav. No, it's yoshev. 
uh, behold, sits Marukva of Beitin. He is the head of the rabbinical court. All right, Shmuel is passing the buck. We've got a woman screaming that some injustice has been done to her. Two scholars hear her, a junior scholar, Rav Yehuda, and Shmuel, his senior scholar. And Shmuel does nothing. Rav Yehuda criticizes Shmuel, and Shmuel's answer is, it has nothing to do with me. Because, yes, I may be your senior scholar, but we've got Marukva. Marukva is not more famous than Shmuel. Shmuel is much more famous than Marukva in terms of the Babylonian Talmud. But Marukva is known to be uh, an exilarch, meaning he has a political position, a Jewish political position, and not just uh, being, or he's not just a rabbi. Av Beidin, Beidin is court, and Av is, I don't know, head of the court or a senior member of the court. So what he's saying here is, 922 to Rav Yehuda, your head, meaning I, Shmuel, am your senior. I am your mentor, and I'm in cold water. But the head of your head, meaning the person who's even senior to me, namely Marukva, he's in hot water uh, because he's there and he did nothing. Uh, let, let me try to make this a little bit more clear. Maybe it's already clear. Uh, he, Shmuel, who was criticized, is deflecting the criticism and saying, yeah, you know who's supposed to be attending to that woman? She, she should be attended to, of course. She should be attended to if she's crying out about injustice. But if it has nothing to do with me. It ain't my responsibility. We've got Marukva. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's there or somewhere else. But whatever it is, let her go to Marukva. She doesn't have to come to me. Let her go to Marukva. All right? Um, I do not like this answer. Um, he, by the way, he is admitting, he's saying, I'm in cold water. <laughs> but, 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 okay, first of all, saying that somebody's in hot water, we still say it today. You say, if I'm in hot water, I mean, I'm in trouble. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I'm just amused by the fact that already chamime, which is hot water, is being used here metaphorically as somebody who's, uh, you know, things are not going well for that person. But the fact that Shmuel just ignored her, <laughs> uh, did he ignore her because she's a woman? Did he, would he have treated a man who cried out about some social injustice in the same way that he treated her? People have looked into this. There are places, other places than Talmud where it says a woman cried out and no one paid attention to her. I don't have any um, additional information on that topic. But um, he is deflecting it. Okay, let me, and then he gives, he too gives a verse, provides a verse, 23. This is Yumiahu 21. Beit David koamar donai dinu laboker mishpat vahatzilu gazul miyad osheik. Uh, line 24, Penteitzei ka'esh chamati uvara ve'en mechabeh mipnei roa ma'alelehem. I have to um, address in a moment the issue of uh, not remaining silent and protesting. But let's just finish this verse. Jeremiah says, the house of David, here's what God says, judge in the morning, um, do justice in the morning, save, this is very important, save the person who's been robbed, mugged, gazul, stolen from Mian Oshek, from the oppressor, because if you don't, because my anger, says God, will um, come out, will emerge, 
ubara, and it will burn. We always talk about anger in terms of hot and burning. And ein mechabeh, and there'll be no quenching my anger because of the roa malehem, the evil of their deeds. So I want to do two things right now. This verse is important for what we are discussing here today because it's clear from this verse that we're no longer talking about religious sins, or as I say, in the ancient world, it was all wrapped up in one. But we have the line here, save someone who has been stolen from, robbed from, from that person's oppressor, from the person who committed that deed against that person. Because sometimes people say, oh, yes, yeah, if there's a religious um, sin, maybe you should say something. But that's it. We're going to limit the obligation to protest wrongdoing to you know, violating the Sabbath. My answer is no. That's, really, that's definitely not the point of what we're seeing in this um, unit of Talmud. We're talking about people who are being oppressed and judges who are not paying attention to those who are being oppressed and the judges are being criticized. And at least one of these judges, or only one of these judges, is saying, well, you're right, but it's not my job. It's his job. Okay, but you're right. We have to pay attention to her. But what I like about, you know, what is this unit lines 20 to 24 doing here? Because Rav Yehuda, the, the lowest on the totem pole, we've got Marukva, and then we have Shmuel, and then we have Rav Yehuda, who in his own right is a big rabbi, but in this particular scheme of things, he's still junior to the others. He is speaking out. He is protesting wrongdoing. So a moment ago, we said, yeah, when you see wrongdoing, it's not enough to be a good person that you don't hurt anybody else. You have to actively, you know, become, you have to become an activist and protest wrongdoing that you see out there in the world. That's exactly what Rabbi Huda is doing. He sees a woman crying out. He sees nobody paying attention to her. And he kind of risks it a little bit by pointing out to his senior scholar, Shmuel, with whom he wants to remain, you know, in a good um, scholar-mentor relationship, junior scholar-mentor relationship, he says, you know, um, I don't like what you just did, and so on and so on. So he is exemplifying, this is our first instance, actually, of, in, so to speak, in real life, this is an anecdote. It happened, in some version of it, maybe it's edited a little bit, but it happened. Rav Yuda carried out this principle. Was it easy for him to do this? I don't know. You don't really want to criticize, again, um, we're talking about... Um, could various people in the current administration speak out to the uh, higher officials and what risk to themselves? Hard to say. But here we have Rabbi Hudad doing it. All right. And now we get to the uh, high point of the uh, text, at least what I call the high point. So from 25 to the end is one continuous. Uh, it sort of is one continuous. Okay, you'll see. I'm continuing. Is everything clear up until now? All right. Amar le Rabbi Zera, line 25, le Rabbi Simon. We're back in the land of Israel. Rabbi Zera, third generation, says to Rabbi Simon, who's slightly his senior, Lochachin humar lahani devei resh galuta. Now, Lochachin, who is uh, in Hebrew as well, is to rebuke. So Rabbi Zera is saying to Rabbi Simon, Mar, the master, you, Rabbi Simon, this is a, a proper way of referring to him in third person, you, my master, you should be rebuking those of the uh, court of the Exilarch. Now, there was no Reish Galuta in the land of Israel, but it has been pointed out by Jeffrey Herman, who studies these kinds of political uh, positions, 
that the Babylonian Talmud calls the higher echelons of government in the land of Israel, uh, the highest uh, position, Reish Galuta. It was really Nasi or Nasia in the land of Israel, but we're not going to let that trouble us. So here we have one rabbi in the land of Israel saying to another rabbi in the land of Israel, the highest officials, we're talking about Jewish officials now, the highest officials, uh, Jewish officials in the land of Israel should be rebuked. Now, we're not told for what. doesn't matter. Um, as I say, we're living through a period of time when we can easily figure out things to, that we might want to rebuke uh, government officials for. So those details don't appear here. It doesn't matter. They should be rebuked. One should be protesting the behavior. You know, Don't we have a moral obligation to protest the wrongdoing um, being committed by the uh, highest officials in the land of Israel. One rabbi says that to another. Let me just make it more clear. Rabbi Zera is saying to Rabbi Simon, you should be. You should be rebuking them. You've got a position here. You may not be the highest, but you should be. Don't remain silent. You should be protesting to them the evil of their ways. And line 26, Amarle, so Rabbi Simon, again, it's one of these Amarle's. So it's easy to figure out. Rabbi Simon answers Rabbi Zera, Lo mekable minai. They won't accept it from me. Meaning, I'm going to be um, issuing uh, criticism. It'll fall on deaf ears. So why should I do it? I'm going to risk my own position. I may even risk my family, which is a little bit of what we're seeing this morning on television. And um, if, if, if I know in advance that by pointing out to them the error of their ways that I'm going to accomplish nothing, that they're not going to listen to me, I don't see why I should do it. So although Rabbi Zera, he himself is not doing it, but although Rabbi Zera is encouraging Rabbi Simon to go and issue a protest to the government over whatever, Rabbi Simon says, you know, like, you're right that one has a moral obligation to protest, but not in this case, because I know for a fact, how he knows, I don't know, but I know for a fact they will not uh, accept my criticism. They will not change their ways. So there's a downside for me in doing it, so I don't want to do it. Line 27, Amarle, Afal gav de lo makable, lo humar, even though they won't hear it, accept it, you should be rebuking them. And then this is Rabbi Zera saying to Rabbi Simon, no, no, that's not a good response that they won't accept it. It is your responsibility to protest their wrongdoing, and either they accept or they don't accept it, but you have a responsibility to say these things, from the, say these things to them. And then, starting on line 28, he brings this, I'm going to editorialize now and say, he brings this amazing midrash. This is an imaginary scene, as you will see. It's not real, but he's going to make a point. And uh, there are a couple of details that I have to um, point out to you, but it, it's a very powerful uh, parable that he's bringing. Line 28, So Rabbi Simon is citing the teaching of this other rabbi. And this, by the way, the rest of this is in Hebrew. That's a mouthful. Never has God issued a midah tova, and the Sansino translation, I cannot do better than that, although Hebrew is midah tova. 
Never has God issued a favorable word and retracted, except for this one time. Meaning, if God says, um, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to bring you to the promised land, God will keep his promise. God never changes um, something good that issued from God's mouth and retracts and says, no, I didn't mean it. Um, you're going to live and not die from such and such thing? No, I didn't mean it. You're going to suffer a terminal illness. No, no, that's not the way God operates. God, when God makes a promise, meaning bringing good tidings to somebody or to the people, God will always follow through. There's just one time when God did not follow through. All right, so first of all, we're setting the stage with God. So let me say it right now. You bring God into the discussion, you are saying that there is nothing, this principle is so important. It's, it's you, you need, I, I need to teach you this principle and for you to accept it from me, this principle of protesting wrongdoing and not remaining silent in order to consider yourself a good Jew. I'm going to show you, I'm going to figure it out with God. I'm going to paint it uh, for you, putting God in the picture. And now he's going to, he, now he cites the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is not a book that we read uh, all that often. There are a couple of Hafta wrote from the book of Ezekiel. So let me just give you a few details from Ezekiel 8, and then uh, line 29 talks about Ezekiel 9. So in Ezekiel 8, you know, the people have been exiled, and Ezekiel is a prophet of the Babylonian exile. And Ezekiel 8, chapter 8, um, it says in that chapter, uh, this is a vision that the prophet had. He says, God took me by tzitzit roshi. Um, tzitzit, we know, fringes on the talit, but he calls it tzitzit roshi, meaning I think he had hair longer than mine, okay? So God picks up Ezekiel by the hair and transports, this is a vision, transports Ezekiel um, to the temple. Ezekiel, I, I forget where he is. He does give his location, but God transports him in the air to the temple, and God says to Ezekiel in chapter 8, which is not here, what do you see? What's happening there in the temple? This is shortly before the destruction of the temple in the first temple in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel says, oh, I see some terrible things. Toavot gedolot, abominations are seen in the temple. I see men worshiping other gods. I see nashim mevakot tatamuz. Tamuz, we know, is the name of a Jewish month, but Tamuz is the name of a diri. Uh, Babylonian deity. So what does he see in the temple? Men worshiping um, some other god. He sees women worshiping Tammuz. He sees sacrifices being offered that shouldn't be offered. So God says to him in chapter 8, you see, you see all these things? I'm going to destroy that temple. And then in chapter 9, let me give you this information and then we'll see it in the lines of the Gemara. In chapter 9, Let's, let's read it right here. Line 29. God is going to punish the people for committing abominations in God's holy temple in Jerusalem. How is God going to do it? Dichtiv, line 29. This is 9, uh, verse 4. Adonai God said um, to him, this is not to Ezekiel. So I, I do have to add a little detail right now that um, is not here in the text. God summons six people, um, men actually, Anashim, six people to come to Jerusalem to start, um, you know, with a sword, killing people, stabbing people. He summons six people, but five of them are going to go around stabbing people, 
because that's what God wants to happen. But the sixth is going to come with a scabbard um, filled with ink or an inkwell on his waist and uh, a quill that you can put out, pull out, all right? And God says, um, this is this rabbi, Achabar Hanina, who said, God never changed a good prediction into a bad prediction. Except for this one time, here it is, Ezekiel 9, God says to that um, sixth man approaching Jerusalem with the inkwell, he says to that man, Avor betochair, pass through the city, betoch Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, v'hitveta tav, and you shall mark with a mark, I'll say what that is in a moment, Mark with a mark. Okay, hitveta tav. Tav is the last letter of the Jewish alphabet. We, we call it tough, okay? But it's also tough vav is the name of the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in ancient Hebrew script, the letter tough was written like this. It was an X, okay? As we know, we call it an X. So God says to this man with the inkwell and the quill, go through Jerusalem and mark with an X the foreheads of the people, and this is, I have to be very careful as I explain this, mark with an X the foreheads of the people who are groaning and moaning about all the abominations that are taking place in Jerusalem. They are groaning and moaning, but not protesting. If I don't add that detail, the story will make no sense, the uh, parable will make no sense. So God says, mark with an X the foreheads of the good people in Jerusalem who did not commit the abominations, but who were moaning and groaning in their own homes, not doing anything about it, about the abominations that were taking place in Jerusalem. 31, So the Holy One, blessed be he, says to Gabriel, now there was a little bit of a shift here. According to Ezekiel, there were six men coming to the city, five to destroy and one to mark with an X. And according to this Midrash that we are now reading, it's angels. So men, angels, doesn't matter. Okay, so God says to Gabriel, who is the angel with the inkwell, Lech urashom al-mitzchan shel tzadikim tav shel dio. So this is an interpretation of the verses in Ezekiel. Go and uh, rishom is to mark Mishom is really to list, but it's to mark. Go and, it's like an impression. Go and mark the foreheads of the righteous people, the tzadikim, a, um, a X of ink. Mark with an X, put an X, inked X, on the foreheads of the good people. Why? In Jerusalem, the city's about to be destroyed. So that the avenging, destroying, destroying angels will stay away from those people. You know, this is a little bit like um, Egypt. You put the blood on the doorpost, and then uh, those homes were not destroyed. So go and mark with an X on the forehead of the righteous people that when the angels come to kill everybody, they'll leave those people alone. Line 32, But put an X of blood. There was no blood in Ezekiel, but this is the Midrash talking now. And mark with an X of blood the evil people, the Rishaim, mark with an X of blood all the evil people. That'll be a sign to the destroying angels. They kill these people. 
33. Now the um, justice, the attribute of justice is portrayed here in feminine, like Statue of Liberty, and a lot of um, these fine qualities are understood to be feminine in Grecian uh, sculpture and so on. So the um, attribute of justice says before God, master of the universe, and I have looked into this. Usually you say master of the universe, I hate to say this, when you criticize God. When you say to God, don't like what you're doing. Uh, the guy who drew a circle around himself in the, when there was no rain, and wanted the rain to come down, he, he addressed God as it's like, you're master of the universe, but, but here's what I need you to do or here's what you're not doing right. So the um, attribute of justice says to um, the Holy One, blessed be he, no, no, what did I do? I'm, I'm back on line 32. Um, in line 32, what am I, where am I? Yes, in line 32, and on the foreheads of the evil people, the ex of blood. And then, okay, line 33, the attribute of justice says to the master of the the Holy One, blessed be he, that's where I was, um, master of the universe, in manishtanu elu me'elu, you know manishtana, how is it different? He says to God, how are these different from those? How are the people who are going to get the ink X on the forehead, whom you called Sadiqim, how are they different from those, the Rishaim, the evil people, who are going to get the blood X on the forehead? God, in what way are these two groups of people different? Now, he's setting God up. You understand? <laughs> because there's only one answer that God can give when God is asked a question like that. Amarle, God answers the attribute of justice, these are fully righteous people with the black X on the forehead, the halalu with the bloody X on the forehead, rishaim gemurim, and they are fully evil. And now comes the punchline, 35, but the attribute of justice says before God, again, master of the universe, ribonosho olam, haya biadam lemachot velomichu, the people with the black X, the ink X on the forehead, whom you, God, called Sadiqim, no, 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 God. They, it was within their power to protest what the others were doing. They could have said to the people who were worshiping the Tammuz and who were worshiping other deities and misbehaving in the temple, these people who you're calling Sadiqim because they didn't do that, oh, they didn't do that, you're right. But they could have protested those who were doing that and they did not protest. So this is a serious criticism of God. In other words, <clears throat> the rabbi that is proposing this principle is going so far as to say that even God at first did not recognize the truth of this principle or the morality of this principle. So line 36, Amarla. <clears throat> so God answers her attribute um, of justice and says, you know, I am God, and all is revealed before me. I can see into the future. I can see into the past. You know, you're telling me that the good people and the evil people, they're all evil because the, good, the evil were evil and the good people didn't protest the evil. But I, God, know that had the good people, had they protested what was going on in the temple, the people whom they were criticizing, we are now calling them the evil people, they wouldn't have listened. I, God, know that. So yes, 
I, God, say there are good people with the X of ink, and then there are bad people with the X of blood. Line 37, I'm <clears throat> but the attribute of justice keeps going, doesn't give up, and says, Ribonosholam, again, Lord of the universe, master of the universe, Here comes a criticism. <clears throat> yes, before you, it was known that had they protested, it wouldn't have made a difference, and therefore you are still calling the good people good. But did the so-called good people know in advance that had they rebuked the others, they wouldn't, the others would not have stopped doing what they were doing? Of course not. This is a rhetorical question. Of course not. So here, and that's, there's a little bit more, but kind of this is the powerful, this is the climax of the anecdote. Here we have God losing an argument to the attribute of justice. Now, you would not make God lose, um, lose, did I say lose an anecdote, losing an argument to the attribute of justice. You would not have God lose an argument if this weren't something that meant more to you than, than anything else you could imagine. So whoever wrote this midrash, I don't know, this Rabbi Achabar Hanina, maybe he wrote it or maybe he cited it, it doesn't matter. Um, they are saying, whoever wrote this is saying, uh-uh-uh, it's not good enough to be a good person, meaning that you don't hurt other people and that you don't steal and you don't rob and, and then Jewishly speaking, you do all the Jewish things that, <clears throat> that the Torah asks you to do. Not good enough. If things are happening in your society that are wrong, if people are committing acts, be they religious acts, uh, idols in the temple, <clears throat> or be they oppressing the poor, it's all the same. <clears throat> you have a responsibility to go out there and to protest what they were doing. They are doing. You could say it's a one-on-one, -on -one, or it's you just join a mass protest. And by the way, <clears throat> in terms of what you could do today, because again, <clears throat> the point of this is speaking to us today. Okay, if you don't want to go out there, let's say I didn't want to go out on Shabbat and join the Women's March, and maybe if it weren't on Shabbat, I still wouldn't have wanted to go out and join it because I had mixed feelings or whatever. You've got Facebook. You've got social media. <laughs> You've got Twitter also. Okay, I don't do Twitter, but I do do Facebook. So yes, there are many different ways of protesting wrongdoing. There are letters to the editor. There are letters to the president of the synagogue, letters to the rabbi. It doesn't matter. You are being asked, you are being told here that is being good is not enough. You cannot call yourself good if you just worry about your own actions. You have to appoint yourself, so to speak, as a policeman. A policeman is not a good word here. But you must be concerned about the actions of others, and if they are behaving in ways that you know are wrong, you must speak out. Let me just do the last couple of lines. If, oh, if it doesn't make a difference? But you don't know that in advance. That, that's, if, if, that's what I, if I understood you correctly, that's the point of this. You do not know in advance whether they're going to respond or not. By the way, I did cite here a commentary of the Tosafot. Um, Though they will not accept it, yet you should rebuke them. And then the comment of the medieval Tosafot commentators on the Talmud is, if there is a chance they will accept it, do it. If not, don't protest. Better they sin unintentionally rather than intentionally. That is a medieval uh, downplaying of this principle. I brought it to you because I thought it would be interesting to you. 
But the powerful lesson is right here in the Talmud. And let me just do the last couple of lines because it's kind of repeated here. You see, the beginning was, did God ever retract? So you haven't heard yet that God retracted. So here it's coming up. Um, line 38. So now we're going to see a new interpretation of what goes on in Ezekiel 9. It says in Ezekiel 9, verse 6, So at first God says to the man with the inkwell, no, first God said to the destroying angels, old people and Bahur, young men and Betula, young women, Taf, children, Nashim, women, Targulam Ashrit, kill them all, destroy them all. Meaning, unless if they had a blood on their forehead, go and destroy them, all of them. But on any person on which there is a um, tuff of ink, altigashu, do not approach them. Um, that's the first part of the verse in um, Ezekiel. But then it goes on to say, that's what the words in Ezekiel appear, um, that's how you read the words in Ezekiel. And from my holy temple, begin. In other words, position yourself around the temple with your swords and fan out from there and kill everybody except those with the X of ink on the forehead. That's what God said originally. Uktiv, and then the verse continues and says, And they began with the old people who were near the temple. Okay. In line, the last line, Tani Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef is a Babylonian rabbi, teaches the following, do not read in the verse of Ezekiel, from my temple you will begin. In other words, from near the temple you fan out and go, go on a killing spree. Don't read it like that. You can read that same word just with a slight vowel change. In Hebrew, um, the vowels don't appear. You can therefore have more than one option of reading a word. Ella Mukudashai. Begin. Mukudashai um, means my holy ones. Elu bene Adam shekimud haTorah kula me'alaf v'ataf. This means begin. You destroying angels. You shall begin with whom? With not not from the mikdash, but begin with my holy ones. Oh, what does my holy ones mean? Begin the killing spree that you're about to go on with the people who fulfilled the Torah from A to Z, okay? But what did they not do, even though they fulfilled the Torah from A to Z? They didn't protest wrongdoing. They are, so, so we see God has retracted. God at first said, save the people with the X on the forehead, the X of ink on the forehead, because they're tzaddikim. Just go after the Rishayim. And according to Rav Yosef, this is in a creative reading of what it says in the book of Ezekiel, don't read it as begin killing from the temple and go out from there. No, begin with my holy ones. Begin with those people who are so like self-righteous that they say, we fulfill the Torah, we do everything right. Yeah, you do everything right but you didn't protest wrongdoing. So that, that is the end of uh, that section of Talmud. And so, yes, so the point is, God never retracts. God makes a promise of good things happening. God will follow through on his promise. One time, okay, don't ask me to validate this, I can't. 
But according to this rabbi, there's only one time in all of Jewish history that God said something good was going to happen. He was going to save the people with a black X on the forehead, and he changed his mind, and he said, no, start killing with the people with the black X on the forehead, because even though they fulfilled the Torah in every last detail, they did not protest wrongdoing. So you see, they brought out their big guns. These rabbis, they want to convince you to speak out, to feel you have a moral obligation to speak out in the face of wrongdoing. They bring God. They get God on their side. It's, uh, to me, this is one of the most moving and powerful moral teachings in the entire Babylonian Talmud. I rest my case, and now we still do have time for comments, Q&A, whatever. I see that nobody interrupted me in the middle. That's good. I guess I was very clear. And I've been instructed that if you make a comment, I have to repeat it because this is being recorded. Any comments? Are you going to change your ways? Yes. I kept thinking of how fundamentalists and people who are, have tunnel vision about, mm. about anything, about, but hear about, about their behavior yes. regarding Judaism, that they won't listen to this because their, their tunnel consists of obeying the rules. They don't think about doing what, what is obviously the, the right thing, which is to speak up and speak out and, and stop bad behavior. They, they just stay in that safe little place. Um, I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, those who are punctilious in their religious observances, and, and yes, and other people as well. You know, I didn't, um, when I studied Talmud at JTS, nobody brought this particular unit to my attention. I don't remember exactly. I came across it on my own. And I got very excited by it. So I actually wrote uh, a very short article about it. It was published in the Jewish Week a number of years ago. And um, yes, I would say that a lot of Jews, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a compliment to the Reform Movement in just a moment. A lot of Jews are not aware of the fact that the Talmud makes this point. A lot of Jews will say, Talmud is all about Jewish law tells me how to do this and how to do that, and I'm going to observe the Talmud <clears throat> from A to Z. I'm going to do everything the Talmud tells me to do. Well, <laughs> if you're going to do A to Z, uh, this is in there too. What I wanted to say right now is the reform movement, more so than conservative movement, other movements, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my impression, the reform movement uh, is more in line with this particular teaching. Now, you could say, oh, but they don't observe the Sabbath traditionally speaking. Okay, well, they, they have their own <clears throat> take on all of that. <clears throat> but what they have definitely um, deduced from great Jewish texts is actually the lesson of this particular text today, which is speak out, speak out. You see wrongdoing? You can't just say, what a shame, you know? Do I worry about the future of the world that my grandchildren are growing up in? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Uh, what am I doing about it? Well, <laughs> we can talk privately about either what I am or I'm not doing about it. But, um, but as I say, the important thing today, if you don't feel that it's your thing to go out there you know, physically and join the protest, you can do it with your computer. Yes. There, there are 
there are many ways today. There, yes. At the very beginning, when you said that uh, the, the uh, rabbi that had thousands of thousands yes. of cows, and yet he singled out this one neighbor to to tell her that she was not following the law. I mean, that's kind of like he didn't. Yes, should have. It's, it's kind of like do unto others, that kind of thing. Do unto others as you would do unto yourself. So in other words, you're not only responsible for yourself, which is the bottom line of your teaching, mm -hmm. you're only not only responsible for yourself, you're responsible for the whole your whole community. Yes. So um, it starts with one-on-one. -on -one. Yes, and other words, before I said my brother's keeper, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. But I, I just want to say what people don't like to take away from this sugya, and I will be in that camp myself, is am I supposed to say, I saw you on Shabbat in the supermarket buying such and such? What no. What are you doing there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was outside looking at No. Um, I think that in the world in which we live today, we do draw a line between your personal religious behavior, uh, you figure that out yourself, I don't. It's, it's wrong of me, morally wrong of me. I think this is how we look at things today, to come and tell you, um, I saw you break your fast on Yom Kippur at 5 p.m., and we know sundown was at 6.30. No, that, we don't do that today. But I do think, uh, because I say, in, in their world system, it was all one. But in our system, we, uh, this is my opinion, uh, we distinguish between, I'm going to hold back and not tell you religiously uh, what you should or shouldn't be doing, but yes, if I see in our society things uh, that are being done wrong, be it one person or, or a whole group of people, I have to do something about it. That that's yeah, that that is what's going on here. Yeah, I I um, I don't know of anybody. Well, I will tell you that a long time ago, somebody visited me, an Orthodox guy whom I knew, spent Shabbat in my apartment, and he saw me take the kitchen sponge and squeeze it out on Shabbat, okay? And we could debate whether Jewish law allows or doesn't allow that, but he very nicely said to me, which rabbi gave you permission to squeeze out your sponge on Shabbat? So that was his very gentle way, he was a very nice guy, of saying to me, you should not be squeezing out your sponge on Shabbat. I still squeeze out my sponge on Shabbat. But, um, so yes, you know, some people will appoint themselves, um, uh, you know, in charge of your religious observance. But I don't think that's the enduring lesson of this sugya. I think it's more about what we call the resh galuta, what's happening out there in society, what's happening out there among our politicians. What are the principles they should be espousing? What are the things they're doing that we disapprove of, et cetera, et cetera. Yes? I think it's more, as far as our interpretation, it's more, we're dealing more with morality than we are with, with the morality religious. Of, of yeah. religious law. Yes. Because the people really criticize those who follow religious law to the letter, and then outside of that, they steal and they hurt and they Okay, let's not go there. No, <laughs> yes. But the point is that, that if we're going to learn from these things, we don't have to learn about whether to squeeze a sponge or not. We have to learn about how to speak out against the, the, the things that are happening, particularly today. Yes, yes. And that, that's why I very carefully called it speak out in the face of wrongdoing 
meaning I'm not going to come to your house and say you're not kosher enough. Wrong doing. I, I left it open, and I tried to stress as we went through these units that the wrongdoing, for the most part, is social injustice. Well, okay, I, I do admit that the people in the temple who are worshiping foreign gods, that was a religious wrongdoing, okay? And that happens to be the beautiful midrash. But, but here, in the other parts of it, we have oppressing the poor, not listening to the woman who's screaming out. So it seems to me that the lesson of this complete unit is uh, not to, I don't think our obligation today is to worry about offering sacrifices to foreign gods as they were doing. Our obligation, unless you want to understand foreign gods as, uh, you know, interpret it more metaphorically as, oh, people who are worshiping money, people who are worshiping, you'll get my opinions, um, um, fossil fuels and so on. It, I, I think the, the lesson, I think the lesson of the sugi is clear, even though, even though I admit the biggest piece of it is about what was happening in the temple, which was religious. But again, let me just make sure you walk out of here. In their day, there was no clear distinction between a religious wrongdoing and a social wrongdoing and, and so on. Whereas today, I think we make a distinction. Uh, other comments? Yes? Well, I'm still hung up on the, on the piece of in the, in whatever the wrong you're protesting, no one's going to listen to you. Is known to? Well, no, the, no oh. you're not going to get listened to. Yes, you're, you're not, not going to get listened to. Okay. Even within your own household, you know. So You've got could, the Tosafot in your camp. You could, <laughs> until you blow in the face, tell someone in your own family that they're not doing something right, but yeah. they're not going to listen to you. So... Well, I mean, so I'm trying, no, you're right. This is this is very powerful, and it's saying go out there on the ramparts, you know, regardless of whether you think they're going to listen or not. But the Tosafot are being very practical and saying, you know, there are times when you know that they're not going to listen, so don't risk anything by by going out at those times. By the way, if there were no underside, I'd say so. You should do it anyway. But there's always an underside. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. If you speak out, uh, speak truth to power, if you speak truth to power, like, wow, that's great. That's what you're being told to do. But the next day, you'll lose your job, or they'll take it out on some member of your family. You know, you, you got you to gotta assess uh, carefully the risk, the risk. You got to assess the risk. Um, yeah, that wasn't God. That was the uh, attribute of justice who pointed right, that right, out to God. Yes. So you can speak out. You know, they didn't speak out, which is what the bottom line is. Yes, yes. You're being told to speak out, but is the question, and God is being criticized for thinking that you don't speak out if you know they're not going to listen, as only God can possibly know, that for sure, for sure, 100% certainty that they're not going to listen. But later Jewish commentators point out that in the world in which we live, if you know they're not going to listen, and there's a risk associated with speaking out, as there can be if we're talking about on the workplace, you know, you see, you see somebody embezzling funds. Oh, sure, I should point out to the boss that so-and-so is embezzling funds. He should be fired. Well, 
I don't know. I mean, that sounds, that's a little too easy and straightforward. But there are times when pointing out what somebody else is doing to somebody higher up, you may be sorry because maybe that person is the nephew of the boss and the boss doesn't want to know, whatever. You know, I, we can always make up examples. You're right. You're, you're, there is the pushback here. Oh, Loma Cable, yes. You're kind of even a judgment call, you're going to win the battle or lose the war. Sometimes not choosing the mm. battle at a certain time. Yeah. You know, I think of your example kind of in a, happens in a business setting. That we have to submit a bid for a project that involves leave. And, and it sends in the bid documents. You must pay at least this much per hour to mm -hmm. your laborers. Mm -hmm. And someone wins the bid at a lower amount, and you know they're not paying mm -hmm. that amount mm -hmm. of labor. Yeah. And the question is, do you challenge That's the good. bid to the authorities? Uh -huh. And the fear of doing it is, if I do, I'll become known as the person who challenges the bid, and other people are not going to want to do business with me. So I wind up losing, even though I know I'm watching someone succeed who's not uh, that's a very good example. That's very realistic. Right. And, um, uh, you know, it's, but I. I'm, I'm agreeing with the point. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't want, I, I don't want the bottom line as we end the session to be. To shut up. You have to assess the risk. You have to anticipate the consequences and then do what's right. Maybe, in it, by the way, in a situation like that, that's a very painful situation. People should be getting paid the amount that, and um, maybe you can figure out some way where there's much less risk. I don't know. What don't about know. silent witness, the silent witness program that you can report something that you yes. see, a yes. crime or some, some wrongdoing, but you're anonymous, you can be anonymous about it, but we're still stepping forward and you might not be risking anything other than a phone call. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's workarounds. That yes, there, there, there are workarounds. Again, I think that one has to take seriously uh, what's being said here. And as I say, we, God is being um, put in his place by a woman, <laughs> by, a woman by the Midat Hadin. The uh, attribute of justice is personified as a woman. Okay. Right, thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.